I'm Helena Cronin. I'm a co-director of the Center for Philosophy of Natural and Social Science, which is hosting this event. And a big welcome to all of you. And a very warm welcome to our speaker, Robert Trivers. Bob, it's really a huge pleasure to have you here. In Bob's book on deception that we are celebrating this evening, Bob says the following, quote, For self-deception, you can hardly beat academics. In one survey, 94% of them placed themselves in the top half of their profession. <laughs> and he adds, I plead guilty. But if he were, say, a Nobel Prize winner, that wouldn't be deception. Well, Nobel didn't provide prizes in biology, but the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences has rectified that omission with the equally, or possibly even more prestigious, Crayford Prize in Biosciences. And in 2007, our speaker won that prize. From all the diverse riches of Bob's work, the most relevant for this institution, LSE, is his really pioneering contribution to laying the foundations of the social sciences. For it's the Nobel Prize winners in biology, far more even than in economics, whose legacy will frame the social sciences of the future. That's a Darwinian legacy of which the core is the proper scientific understanding of our human nature. So, as well as being a great pleasure to welcome Bob to this platform, it's also a privilege and an honor. And on a personal note, it's also a happy reprise. Um, Bob, Bob gave a budding version of this talk when I invited him here in 1998. And so to see that budding version come to fruition has very special meaning for me personally. The plan now is for Bob to talk for a while, about 40 minutes, not necessarily exactly, and then we'll have questions from the floor, and then we'll finish at about 7.45, and after that Bob will sign copies of this splendid new book, Deceit and Self-Deception, Fooling Yourself, The Better to Fool Others. And that is also the title of the lecture, which, Bob, I now invite you to deliver. Well, hello again, and it's nice to come back. Uh, in 1998, I spoke on the subject here, and uh, the immortal W.D. Hamilton introduced me, and then, as I understood it, between the two of us, we killed off the Darwin Seminar, and they never had it again, so I'm happy that Helen is willing to invite me back. Uh, I must say, I don't, I only, uh, I'm only conscious of knowing two members of the faculty, Helena Cronin, and a uh, very uh, creative man, I just met Yanis Kal uh, Kos, and he told me, which I trust uh, I have ra accurate, that the, the student, uh, the professor to student, well, sorry, the student to professor ratio here is about seven to one. And that sounded like heaven from both standpoints, you know. Obviously, but the professors are not being overworked teaching students, and on the other hand, you would expect uh, each student to be able to find at least one professor willing to spend a few minutes with him or her. So okay, I want to talk about uh, deceit and self-deception, and the key, uh, deception's no problem at all in evolutionary logic or in terms of the vast amount of uh, data we have now on it at all levels of life. Bacteria will imitate uh, parts of our body to gain entry and so forth and so on. But if you just limit to yourse yourself to within species deception, it's, uh, we have uh, many examples now, monkeys and apes, other mammals, birds, insects, and so on. Um, the problem has always been self-deception. It's easy enough to elaborate situations in which I can gain a benefit, ultimately reproductive or in terms of inclusive fitness, by deceiving you or lying to you, uh, but uh, 
oh, what's the benefit of lying to ourselves? Um, so uh, um, I'll skip the uh, incorrect answers to this question as I've seen it, but it hasn't been a, a question for a long time in, in philosophy and psychology. So I came up with a notion back in the 70s when I was working on parent offspring conflict that maybe self-deception could evolve in the service of deceit so that by fooling yourself you could better fool others. And there are two major categories I, I have in mind. Let's imagine now I'm telling you a lie about something you actually care about and better yet you're close up and, and better yet still you know me. Then you can study my behavior and my eye movements for example. I'm apt to look away from you while telling a lie and I used to think that was nervousness where we flick our eyes around. No, no, no. It seems that it's more like cognitive load. That is, lying consciously is a mentally demanding task. You've got to invent a falsehood. It cannot contradict something your listener knows or will soon know. Uh, you have to give it in a plausible style and you have to remember the thing yourself. And so consequently, when you're looking someone straight in the face and inventing a lie, that's kind of overwhelming. So what people tend to do is look off in the midst of a lie and fixate on some blank uh, point in space in order to elaborate the lie before they can look back. Or consider a uh, pitch of voice. Uh, when you're lying and you come to the key word, you often tense up because that's the thing you're trying to slip by them. But any tensing of the muscles here of the system is almost automatically going to tend to raise your voice. So your pitch can go up. Likewise, there's certain linguistic characteristics, including uh, pauses, or in the case of denial, people tend to answer too quickly because you want to deny it and get it out of sight. Uh, when you're inventing a lie, it may take you uh, extra time. Um, so there are various of these uh, characteristics that are associated with conscious knowledge of in an individual propagating deception. So if you practice self-deception first, if you're unconscious of the fact that you're telling a lie, then those avenues of detection should be unavailable to you. And also the cognitive load is greatly reduced for the, cog for the conscious mind because the unconscious mind's taking care of the necessary cognitive steps. The other major category to me related to it is that we're all in the business of uh, propagating an image of ourselves as the more positive than we uh, deserve. So we're brighter than we really are. We're more moral. We're more useful to others. We're better looking. Uh, and if we actually believe that, it's probably likely that we will create a better image along those lines, fool people more in the direction of having an elevated view of ourselves for our own benefit. Um, so um, I'm going to come back to self-promotion and unfortunately Helena gave away one of my favorite lines about academics. 80% of high school students in the U.S. As seniors say they're in the top half for leadership ability. It's not possible. <laughs> but as she pointed out, quoting a well-known authority on the subject, you cannot beat academics for self-deception. You know? uh, and I do plead guilty, but I add the fact that uh, I can be tied down to a bed in the back ward of a hospital and I still think I'm doing better than half my colleagues. <laughs> And that's not just a comment on my colleagues. So anyway, let me start out by mentioning some linguistic features of deception, which we're usually unconscious of, but perform a biasing function in the listener. So one thing is that if I do things that are beneficial to you, I do this, I do that, then I take a po uh, uh, an active voice. I do this, I do that and benefits rain down on you from heaven. Now if it's the other way around, then things happen, then this happened, then alas, you suffered that. And to me, uh, one of the nicest examples of this was a man in San Francisco who ran into a telephone pole 
uh, and as recorded by the police, his statement was, the pole was approaching my car when I attempted to swerve out of the way, and it struck me. <laughs> well, <laughs> we, we know from physics that this is a perfectly legitimate description, but it's rather shifted the responsibility to the telephone pole. All right, let me give you another example. Um, let's say uh, Yanis, whom I just mentioned, is a member of my in-group, and Helena is a member of an out-group. Then we have the following linguistic bias. If Yanis uh, does something nice for me, I say, uh, Yanis is a really nice person. I generalize it. Okay. Now, if Helena does something nice for me, I say she brought me a glass of water. Uh, same thing as uh, each did. Now, if it's negative, it's get, it, it gets reversed. Yanis uh, um, bumped into me. If she bumps into me, she's a clumsy and inconsiderate person. Okay. And there are many studies that show that we have this tendency, and we're usually unconscious of these kind of uh, linguistic biases. Now, um, when we say that we're, let's say 70% of us say we're in the top half for good looks, is that just our mouth talking, or as Jamaicans would say, is that just the way we flab our mouths, or is there something deeper going on? And I think you'll find the next uh, slide and the work here uh, very interesting because it suggests that there's something deeper going on here. It's not just our mouth flabbing. So, um, oh, damn, skip that one entirely. Uh, well, uh, let me just say, yeah, let's say what is self-deception, all right? Now, one way to uh, look at it is that the truth and falsehood are simultaneously stored in you, but with a bias, a counterintuitive bias of putting the truth in the unconscious. You would think if you had to store truth and falsehood about something in your mind simultaneously, you'd put the false information somewhere in the unconscious, down the basement, out of sight and out of mind, and keep the true information in the conscious mind to benefit from whatever the benefits of consciousness are, which is by no means clear. But it seems to have something to do with our ability to focus attention on something and bring extra resources to bear temporarily. Uh, so the, then the functional argument here is that this is directed towards an outsider uh, who sees the false information in the conscious, which is what you're trying to fool him with. It's much harder for you to figure out unconscious components of my behavior, whereas by just listening to my voice and watching my eyes and hands, you can get some sense of what the conscious organism uh, is trying to do. By the way, I used to think that uh, it was always truth and false simultaneously stored. But we've got some good studies now, or social psychologists have done one, where it's pretty clear that people shunt the truth aside so early that it doesn't even enter. So it's not a logical necessity that you have the truth stored anywhere. If you're thinking functionally, you can imagine that it might be a good idea to have the truth stored down there somewhere, because you might need it, and you might have ways of accessing it. And we'll come back to some of the costs of self-deception. But uh, I should point out that it's uh, trivial, and, and in an evolutionary argument, it's always cost-benefit. You know, it's not self-deception, good, 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 and the more and the higher you get, and the way you fly. No, it's, it has its downside, and in some situations the costs overwhelm the, the benefit, and some situations the other way around. Okay, now let's go back to this problem of, of how good-looking you think you are. Now this was a, a nice piece of work done by Epley here and Whitchurch. Now, uh, Whitchurch is a woman, and they've stripped the, her hair off of her, and then they've morphed her face with increasing percentages, 10, 20, and then 50, of an attractive woman's face, and that's just the average of 15 attractive women uh, judged out of a sample of 60, okay? And then averaging makes it even more attractive. Or they want to make you uglier, so in this case, they morphed you with someone with craniofacial syndrome that's twisting your face and making you uglier. So she's getting better looking here, uglier here. Now, 
Epley's not too good looking to start with, but, <laughs> but he's getting better looking here and he's going downhill here. Okay. And they use the same way of morphing. Now here's the game they play, and you've got to imagine they're playing it with you. Okay, they've taken your photograph and they've gone and morphed it. And in particular, they're using the 20% better looking and the 20% uglier and the real you. And they play the following game. You're sitting in front of a, a computer terminal. You're told that you're going to see a set of faces and that you should pick out your own as quick as possible. So, blingo, 12 faces are in front of you, one of which is yours. With your right hand, you hit the button as soon as you spot that it's you, and then you point with your left hand to which it is, which then corrects for errors. But here's the catch. They play the game, and of course they repeat it, but they play it some of the times with real you, some of the times with 20% better looking you, and some of the times with 20% uglier you. So the question is, which do you spot first? And you spot better looking you first. It takes 5% longer for you to see the real you, <laughs> and it takes 5% longer still to see the ugly you. Now, when I was writing the first draft of this book in Berlin at an institute there, I used to amuse myself by asking cognitive neuroscientists what they guessed it would be. And to an organism, as I remembered it, they all said, you're going to see real you first. God damn it. Nervous, <laughs> system, nervous systems oriented towards reality. Well, it doesn't seem to be so in this case. Now, if you take all of those pictures you saw across there, all 11 of them, and ask, and you're asked, and of you, and you're asked, which ones do you like, which one do you like the most? It's 20% better looking you. And if you're asked, which one do you think is you? It's about, an, it's somewhere between 10 and 20%, called 15%. So I think that's an important point here, that you expect self-deception to be bounded. You know, 30% might be implausible. 10% you're not gaining as much of the benefit uh, as you could. Okay, now I want to uh, turn to another study which again, like this one, has moved beyond the curse of social psychology for, I don't know, 30, 40 years, which was they tried to build a science on the basis of questionnaire answering behavior. So you'd take a questionnaire that showed how much you had an authoritarian personality and then you would take a questionnaire that showed how racist you were or whatever and then they'd correlate the two and try to build up a science from that. Well, you cannot do it. You're not, you cannot build up a science uh, from questionnaire answering behavior. For one reason, for one thing, we're not honest, and for a second thing, we don't know ourselves. So it's, a, it's an absurd way, it's an absurd dream. What the, the newer social psychology is work like this where you measure reaction time, or in the following case. There are two ways you can write an E on your forehead. You can write an other-focused E, so you all see the E on my forehead, uh, or with a somewhat less pleasant-looking organism, you can write a self-focused E here, where looking through it, I see the E, okay? Now here's the game they play. They say, do that five times, and then right away put an E on your forehead. Now the reason why they do this is because they don't want you thinking about it. They want to try to have you concentrate on this and then quick do it. Okay. Now then they use a prime where they try to induce in you a feeling of power or powerlessness. And it's artificial, but it works. At least for a brief period of time you can induce this thing. You have to write about when you were powerful, how you felt, blah, blah, blah. And then you're allowed to distribute uh, candy among the people there. If you're powerless, it's the reverse, and you're only allowed to write down how much candy you're hoping you'll get. Okay? So what's the effect of this power prime on uh, whether you write an other-focused E or a self-focused E? Well, m on average, most of the time, we do write uh, another focused E, but individuals that are low in power uh, um, 
almost always write another focus D, or to put it the way they're doing it here, self focused D is only about 13% of the time. But if you're made to feel powerful, the self focused E jumps up to about whatever the hell it is, 33%. More to the point, you are less able to recognize facial expressions that are flashed for like a second in front of the screen. They might be angry, they might be sad, they might be happy. Uh, powerful people or people induced to feel powerful, less good at uh, spotting facial expressions, less good at remembering them, and find a harder time in a simulated situation of taking the view of someone else. And it makes a kind of obvious intuitive sense. Powerless have got to pay attention to the people above them, you know. Uh, they got power. Uh, the, the powerful do not, do not necessarily. Now you gotta love social scientists. Why in Jesus' holy name have they made this damn thing two-dimensional? So <laughs> You gotta run your eye along here, then you gotta run it downhill. Uh, it looks like it's 13. And then you go on over here and you say, let me get this right. Yeah, it's about 33. So I believe the general rule is the less the content, the bigger the presentation. Okay? <laughs> okay. Now, um, uh, let me combine this with uh, overconfidence. Both sexes are overconfident. We're all overconfident, but it's more a male disease than it is a female disease. And there's good evolutionary logic for it that I'll spare you right now. But uh, to give you an empirical example, uh, in the US they did a very nice study of people who were investing in the stock market, I think in the 90s, uh, and they were doing it through the computer or something. And uh, all of them are, are trading too often because they don't know what the hell's going on and it's basically a random walk. And there's a fee charged every time you trade a stock. So they overtrade and they worked it out. Women lose one and a half percent of their money every year because they're overtrading. Men lose almost three percent of their money because they're overtrading. And there are other examples of this. So a powerful man is both uh, ignorant and overconfident. That's a bad combination, uh, a dangerous one indeed. <laughs> I rest my argument. Okay. Now, okay, here I've got to go over here. Well, actually, um, how early does all of this start? Well, uh, for self-deception, we can't answer, but, uh, oh, I see, when I do this, oh, damn. Okay, boof, boof. Okay, we'll leave it here. We'll go here. But for deception, we can answer it. There. Oh, okay. Uh, sorry, I'm, uh, I know how to turn these gadgets on and off to email and run a, and write a document, but that's about it. <laughs> okay, so um, we know we know the deception starts. Uh, I guess is that going to do it? That's ah, big enough. Uh, we know the deception starts. Uh, by six months of age, the child starts crying out of context. Uh, it's not really in pain. It doesn't really need anything except the attention it desires or whatnot. Now, this young fellow is about a year of age.
That boy will keep that up all afternoon, but uh, time is short, so um, let's see now, where are we? Ah, okay. Now there's another little boy here, again about a year of age, and what you'll see is that he's learned to use a facial expression in a novel context and exaggerated, just the kind of uh, ability or tool that would be useful in deception. So let's see if we can get this to work. <laughs> Father will say, give him the evil eyes. Give him the evil eyes, man. Give him the evil look. <laughs> now what? That's his real look now. What? Like what the hell's going on over there? Now we're going to run through it again. It's the same thing. But first you'll see. Give him the evil eyes, son. Give him the evil, evil eyes, son. Give him the evil look. <laughs> but then you get to see what I think is what they built it on. He had this natural tendency to, you know, look over there and say, I love that little boy. Okay, now, the, the baby actually starts to see you, I'm talking to the women in the room, of course, when it's inside you. The baby takes over control of your blood sugar level, which increases resources for it. It increases your blood pressure, which increases resources for it. And it uh, uh, ex uh, takes away blood from your legs and your arms and puts it right here, which again increases resources to it. Fine, you could say, well, maybe it has evolved. Mom says to herself, look, the baby knows better than I do what its needs are, so I'll let the baby take over, okay? Now, the reason we doubt that is because of the following fact. What the baby does is to dump into the maternal bloodstream either the same hormones that she herself uses at other times to control that variable or a close chemical mimic. But here's the key, or the the catch. It does so at a thousand times the concentration that the mother does. And that suggests a coevolutionary struggle in which initially the offspring puts in more resources and then the mother becomes inert. And then the offspring puts in even more and the mother becomes inert until you're way up there to a thousand. Because it's not to the mother's advantage to give the child as much as the child would like. The mother has to partition her resources between, uh, usually between other children, past, present, and future. Uh, so it's as if the child is calling, Mama, me hungry! And she's saying, me can't hear you! And then it's louder, you know, Mama, me hungry! And she's, you say you're hungry? So there's an escalating conflict that has the form of, of deception of the mother. Now, Here's an extremely important result. The brighter your child is, the more he or she lies. <laughs> All right? And here's the... So, if, if you've got... Uh, they give four-year-old children a little cognitive test, and it's scale like an IQ test, so 100, over 120 is real good, and under 80 you're kind of slow. Now. Uh, an axis got lost here, forgive me. But trust me, if your child is bright, the child lies 100% of the time. If you've got a slow child, it lies 65% of the time. Well, what's the experiment? The experiment was invented by a good friend of mine, uh, head of the Institute of Child Development at Rutgers. And the child is sitting here, and there's a box behind the child. And there goes that. Um, there's a box behind the child. Let's see if this keeps working. Okay. And the experimenter opens the lid. Remember, it's behind the child. Sticks a teddy bear or something like in there. Shuts the box and says to the child, I'm leaving the room for a couple of minutes. Do not peek. Do not peek. 
Then the, then the uh, adult leaves the room, watches through a one-way mirror, and most children peek. Then the experimenter comes back inside and says, did you peek? And most children lie. But they lie according to how bright they are. Indeed, a separate study showed that if you just scored the children for health at birth, and there were uh, 22 independent factors of perinatal health at birth, and I forget them, but there's a weighted average of them. That predicts whether they're going to be honest, uh, relatively more honest, or lie more often uh, later on when they're roughly four years old. Healthier child's going to be more of a liar. Bright child's going to be more of a liar. All right. There are parallel evidence from monkeys and apes, done right here by a couple of good old hard-working British scientists. And what they did initially was they combed the entire uh, published literature in the field on monkeys and apes back in roughly 1990 for all cases of what they call tactical deception, which is where a monkey clearly deceives another one to gain some benefit. Okay? Then, publish, having published that, they sent that out to colleagues around the world and said, please send us any field data on you know, additional acts of deception. So they got a bigger sample. Then they did a very rigorous correction of group size, number of studies, so forth and so on. And what they found was, uh, the larger your brain is, but the correlation is slightly stronger if you use just the social brain, this big section up here, uh, the more the monkey or the ape lies. Okay, so putatively, the smarter it is, the more it lies. This is uh, given in this kind of form because it's a so-called taxonomic contrast case, and never mind exactly how that works, but its feature is that this shows that the correlation works across primates as a group. It's, it doesn't just work for apes and on average work for all of them. This works throughout the the uh, primates, okay? Now, it would be very valuable if we had parallel evidence on adults. We do not. And, but at least we should take seriously the possibility that intelligent or bright people lie more often and practice self-deception more often. That's not congenial to an academic audience or to intellectuals. Ain't we smarter, so don't we see better into ourselves, and goddamn ain't we honest, and so forth and so on. Well, my guess is that uh, the only effect of, uh, of that in academia is that you would practice more self-deception when you lied, so you didn't have to suffer the conscious knowledge that you're a liar. But in any case, to restate the matter, you've got two axes, consciousness, if you want, and intelligence. They could be orthogonal, unrelated to each other, or they could be positively correlated, as many people implicitly assume. Brighter is less, uh, less dishonest, less self-deception. I have for a long time um, been attracted to the opposite correlation, that they're inversely correlated. And at least the data from children and monkeys regarding deception uh, is consistent with that. Okay, now let me, let me turn to a classic case of denial and projection, and maybe toss in reaction formation if you want, where you react against the component of yourself you don't like, and you project it on out there. Now this has to do, this was very nice work that was done down in Georgia on A1 heterosexual men. What's an A1 heterosexual man? That's a man who's never had a homosexual experience, nor a homosexual thought or fantasy, or so he says. <laughs> All right. Now, so they've got these A1 heterosexual men, and then they give them a little paper and pencil thing on homophobia. You know, how upset would you be if you saw two men holding hands? How upset you would be if your son's gym teacher were a male homosexual, etc. And then they divide them into those that are relaxed and those that are really upset, so-called homophobic and non-homophobic. Now comes the fun part. They tie a plethysmograph to the base of every man's dick, and the, and the plethysmograph measures 
small changes in circumference very accurately. And so now you've got an independent measure of arousal. You don't have to ask them, which they also do, how aroused did, did you feel afterwards. Now they show them dirty movies, all right? <laughs> so you've got six minutes of watching a man and a woman make love. There's an admirable increase in penis size, uh, continuing on up, in fact, all six minutes. Uh, they'd be happy with another minute if, <laughs> you know, if, 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 they, if their dick were large enough, so to speak. So anyway, now the two, the, two, uh, the homophobic and non-homophobic, they're statistically indistinguishable, so I won't tell you which is which. Now you're watching two women make love, and you start off admirably, but for some reason, well, we could come back to you if you want, you taper off, okay? Uh, however, uh, once again, there's no significant difference between the two. Now, I think uh, many of you may be guessing what's down here. Here we have two men getting it on. Here are non-homophobic, relaxed men. They show a small and insignificant, this is not statistically significant, uh, trend here towards an increase in wood size, to use the, the Jamaican term. Now let's look at the homophobic men. They start rising. They start taking off here. They're still climbing. They, they end up, you know, at least two-thirds of the way up to watching two lesbians. Now, we know this phenomenon in the U.S. because it's almost a monthly occurrence that a politician or a preacher who's ta taken a strong public stance against homosexuality is outed for his secret homosexual life. So it seems to be a case of denial, projection, and then attack, you know, and probably Camouflage is probably the major reason for it. Okay. Now, I believe... Yes. Uh, damn. What do I got to do to... Uh, oh, well. <laughs> let, me get, let me get this under control. Forgive me. I didn't know what I was doing there, obviously. All I want to do is kill it. Good. Because that's the end of my slides. Let me see. Okay, good. So, I hope you'll give me, what, 10 minutes max? Okay, fine. Now, when I started, I finished a very difficult genetics book with a brilliant um, geneticist uh, from Canada, but working here in the UK. That blew 15 years out of both of our, our lives. But in any case, in 2005, I turned to this topic. And after about two or three years, I was surprised to learn that there was an immunological dimension to self-deception and that if you neglected that, you would neglect some important parts of the argument. There is a field called psychoneuroimmunology and it obeys the rule the larger the name of the field, the smaller the content. But that's because it's the intersection of psychology neurophysiology and immunology, so it's just this intersection. But it's a fascinating area, and they've been making steady progress for 20 years. There's an entire chapter of my book on the immunology of self-deception, and I think it's one of the most interesting, you know, uh, in that you'll not have known about any of it, any of what's in there. So let me just give you, um, I think I'll just give you one example here and we will return to homosexuality, only we'll deal with men who are uh, overwhelmingly or exclusively homosexual. And uh, what the evidence shows is that the more you're in the closet, you all know what that phrase means, you're in the closet, so if you're completely in the closet, you ain't letting any heterosexual know. If you're part way out, you share it with some friends, a little bit more of your family, etc. And completely out, whoop-de-doo, anybody can spot you on the street and read your <laughs> sexuality. All right. Now, it turns out that the more you're in the closet, the worse for you. The, if you take measures of your immune system, uh, you're, they're weaker. If you're HIV negative, on the one extreme, you suffer more from cancer. On the other extreme, you suffer more from bronchitis. If you're HIV positive, you transit into AIDS quicker and you die 20% earlier. 
so um, uh, living a lie is immunologically costly. And so that's a cost of deceit and self-deception, which you wouldn't know if you didn't do some of the immunology. By the way, when I first, the first work that was done was done on HIV positive men, and that's why this is well researched because uh, of the interest in HIV and AIDS and so on. And I, and I said, yeah, but you've got to correct for unsafe sex. Because my supposition was that if you're in the closet, you're more likely to practice unsafe sex. And it's uh, there's particularly the dangerous kind, anal receptive, but I'm not saying that differs by in the closet. It's just you're going to practice unsafe sex. So if you're out of the closet, you've got three condoms here and one in the boot in case it's an orgy, right? <laughs> now, if you're in your closet, you go out with your heterosexual friends to dinner and you have no intention, conscious uh, or otherwise, to engage in uh, homosexual activity, but you have four drinks and at midnight your car turns left instead of right and you find yourself there, but without a condom. Well, bless their souls, two of the most recent studies corrected for exactly that. And yes, indeed, there is a, a significant tendency, but it's just a bit lower than 0.05 for individuals that are uh, in the closet to practice more unsafe sex. And when you correct for it, uh, you still get this, this huge effect of simply being in the closet. Okay? Have any of you heard of the glass closet? I didn't think so. The term was just invented about two months ago in New Jersey, of all places. So here's what someone living in a glass closet is. He's a homosexual male who is hiding his sexuality from his heterosexual friends because he thinks they'll like him less if they know. In fact, all of them know. So <laughs> he's, he's in a glass closet. Nobody yet has done the immune work on uh, somebody living in a glass closet. As a side comment, I might mention that the absurd um, uh, compromise that old Bill verbalistic solution Clinton came up with, don't ask, don't tell, is in this sense an immunological disaster. Okay, let me mention one other thing, because after I try to deal in this book with the you know, the different topics you would deal with, social psychology, sex, family, immunology, and so on. Then I try to turn to larger topics, and one of them is airplane crashes. I wrote a paper with Huey Newton years ago, 30 years ago maybe, on the crash of Air Florida Flight 90, and ever since then I kept up with them. Back in those days there was no Google and so on, so we just, every time there was an airplane crash, the newspaper article went in a folder. All right, one interesting fact I want to mention to you. 80% of accidents occur when the pilot is flying, yet the two of them fly equally often. So again, it's a counterintuitive effect. Isn't the pilot more experienced? Isn't he the pilot and the other guy the co-pilot? What's going on here? Well, there's a, a, a variety of lines of evidence now that suggest it's a dominance problem in the cockpit, such that if the co-pilot's too timid, the pilot can be flying into a mountain and they're slow to say, you know, we're heading into a mountain, I think you ought to bank sharp. Uh, literally, there have been crashes like that. Uh, whereas if it's in the reverse situation, the pilot's much more apt to speak up and correct. So with sufficient dominance there, uh, now we're talking about deceit and self-deception at a group level with two individuals. It's like there's only really one person. Now, I'm flying on tomorrow to Poland, which I've never been to, and uh, um, as you all know, they pulled off an incredible stunt. They wiped out their entire uh, leadership of their country in an airplane crash. You know, when I saw it in the newspaper that morning, I said, ooh, I'm suspicious on this one because they're flying to Smolensk in order to go to the celebration with the Russians, the commemoration of the Kachin Forest Massacre when the Soviets massacred 20,000 Polish officers, uh, armed service officers, and the Smolensk airport was socked in. <laughs> it was even worse than it's the pilot flying. The, this was an Air Force plane, and it is an Air Force officer flying, and in the cockpit as they're heading down is the head of the Air Force. 
and in the back seat is the president. And, and the president wants to get there. If, if, if Russia's so big, if you can't land in the Smolensk airport, you gotta land in Moscow. And that's a nine hour drive to reach Smolensk, never mind the additional, so you're not gonna get, be there at the ceremony on time. But Jesus God Almighty, the, the, the catastrophe happened 70 years ago. You don't think you can wait a day or two to commemorate it? So there were two things that violated procedure, and there's evidence for each of these separately. You don't want anybody else in the cockpit, period. Small executive jets will suffer accidents because people are wandering in and out of the cockpit. Oh, come on, let me show the boss what it's like to, you know. And in this case, then, you also had the dominance of the... Uh, now, to the Poles' credit, and I wish uh, my own country did this more often, they learned from their lesson. Of course they resisted the truth and wanted to blame it on the incompetence of the Russian controllers and blah, blah, this and blah, blah, that. Now, <laughs> no government officials are allowed to fly anymore on, on an Air Force airplane. Uh, you've got to fly commercial. And I don't know whether you've flown commercially recently, but they do not welcome you into the cockpit. <laughs> so anyway, okay. There are other topics I could talk about, but of course I won't. I'll just summarize by saying this is a topic that affects all of us at all levels of our life. Disastrous wars, uh, the kind of garbage and nonsense in the United States pouring out every day now that it's an election season. It's, it's staggering, you know. And so whether you're talking about international relations, what's happening with inside your country, what's happening in your family, what's happening in your closest relationships with your partner or children, or even your discussions you're having with yourself. Deceit and self-deception is, is operating to some degree in all these areas. And it's a subject that we can all participate in, in thinking about because the logic is very simple. The evidence so far is easy enough to master if you need to. And you don't have to be a scientist or a historian or whatnot, although it's very interesting to have the contributions from those areas. Uh, we can all contribute to an understanding of deceit and self-deception. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Bob. That was an outstanding lecture, and it really was a delight as well. You could see how we were all enjoying it. Um, I'm now going to ask for questions from the audience. And do you want to just stay standing there? Are you comfortable there? You're okay? Beg your pardon? You're okay just standing there? Oh, no, I want to stand. Good? Okay. How about that? Um, Please, just three things about the questions. Uh, wait till the roving microphone comes to you. And please keep your question short. And also, tell us your name and where you're from, unless you really prefer not to. OK, questions. I'll start at the back, over there. Somebody, you, yes, you who looked round. Yes. Thank you very much. Um, now wait for the waving, waving, <laughs> roving microphone. And your name. Ramesh Shukla is my name. Uh, otherwise, um, uh, nondescript. <clears throat> we live in a very complex world. I mean, uh, as the world is not already very complex, there's self-deception. Well, one could imagine how complex it can be. Uh, but I was interested in, in the comment you made, or you, um, observation you made, that the more intelligent you were, better you were at self-deception. Now, one would have thought that self-deception is something which can't help you, uh, I mean, self-deception can, can, can harm you. And as an intelligent person, you would realize that deceiving others is okay, but self-deceiving is not such an okay thing. And it would suggest that the self-deception we do, we do without any effort. It happens to us almost automatically, we are, as if we are an autopilot. And I was wondering whether something else might not explain this action better. And that is that we have self-love, and in the service of self-love, we have self-esteem. And in the service of that, we have self-deception. 
So, uh, what is your question? You're, the question you're is, asking, is it in the service of self-esteem that we have self-deception? Is that your question? Well, yes, it is. Okay, it, it, thank you. Thank you. Well, um, thanks for the quick uh, summary of the question there, Helena. Um, I might mention I only have one ear that's actually functioning. This is entirely decorative now, uh, so I, I have an extra problem hearing. But uh, there are some of these results that are affected by so-called self-esteem. For example, not everybody is... Um, self-inflating even though on average 80% may be. And there are certain studies that even show differences in parental uh, rearing style that affect your degree to practice it. There's some people that actually think they're uglier than they are, you know. Okay. But um, the, I think the, the, one of the great mistakes of psychology has been to argue that self-deception is defensive. Uh, a Freudian system, it was defensive against unconscious urges that were overwhelming you from your childhood. Forget that. Uh, modern social psychology, it's more like it's defending your sense of happiness. Happiness is good, optimism is good, and self-deception makes you feel happy. Now, I'm very suspicious of that, and I've been studying their claims. It's a, part of the literature is called Positive Illusions. One thing they'll cite that I think is uh, feeble on, the, on its face is the fact that depressed people do not tend to practice self-inflation. So depressed people see the world more accurately, from which they conclude that we wouldn't get out of bed in the morning without self-deception. That uh, self-deception's good because it's making us happy, and if we didn't practice it, we would be depressed. Well, I'm saying, uh, Depression is probably a good time for being a little bit more self-critical. And in any case, if you're depressed, how the hell are you going to pull off self-inflation? I'm walking along here depressed and saying, I'm better looking than most of you people. <laughs> uh, it ain't going to work. Now let me give you an example of immunology because they make this mistake over and over and over again, in my humble opinion. There was a recent very nice study uh, that uh, was looking at law students throughout the year, and they measured their sense of optimism five times, let's say. And that, again, was measured with a little scale thing. So it's imperfect, but it's a measure. At least what it was correlated with was, was real, and that was the, there was a, a measure of the strength of the immune system. There are various measures of the immune system, and we'll, we'll skip all that. We'll just say there's a measure. And what they found out was, that the, uh, the more optimistic the people were within a person's life, within a person's year, the better his immune system, his or her immune system was working. If you compared individuals, there was no correlation. Now they argue from that with not a second uh, uh, counterthought that uh, uh, optimism is good because it improves our immune system. But let's turn it around and give an immunological view of our, of our optimism. Your immune system is purring along at peak efficiency. There's not a parasite in sight, nor are you recovering from a recent parasite. Are you expected to be more optimistic or less optimistic? Now, when you write the people, and I wrote the woman that did this work, or was the corresponding author for it, and I said to her, you know, what's your reason for, you know, assuming causality is only going in one direction? These are just correlations, after all, and the literature is virtually entirely correlations. And she wrote back some, something about, well, 20 years of work. Yeah, I've been studying the 20 years. You know, this is one of the nicest studies, but the fact that you've been assuming it unidirectionally for 20 years is not an impressive answer <laughs> to why you're continuing to do it, you know. <laughs> okay. Next. Over there. Brief, please. I'm George, an alum of the LEC, and my question is, um, after I have lost a lot of the respect I had for my friends who don't lie, the two friends that I, I can think of. Sorry, uh, you say you lost your respect for friends that what? That do not lie. 
as a result of your lecture, because I think that they are dumber than I thought. Uh, wouldn't you say that not lying is still um, gives an evolutionary advantage? Because I would trust them, and everybody else would trust them for for being honest. For, for everything, to, to for work with them. To for apparently being honest. Yeah. These are apparently honest individuals who gain the benefit of trust and so on because they're apparently honest. Is that what you're saying? Well, I've tested them for a long time. Well, so. okay. <laughs> Let's not fight over the word apparently, for God's sake. You know, uh, there's two kinds of honesty. There's uh, conscious honesty and there's complete honesty. I mean, I can be perfectly honest because I've already... Uh, cook the uh, facts and the data unconsciously, so I'm unaware of my dishonesty. When I was roughly, no, when I was younger than you, um, um, I was, you know, I was a heavy into truth and honesty, and I was rather moralistic about it, you know. In retrospect, I think I practiced more self-deception in certain situations to maintain that image of rectitude and so on, and it was partly hanging around with the uh, immortal uh, Black Panther Huey Newton that got me to relax about it and then when I relaxed about it and practiced a little bit more uh, deception consciously then I started to become uh, much more conscious of the amount of uh, uh, manipulation and deception. One thing that, that uh, honest people can be vulnerable to or truth-oriented people can be vulnerable to is an underestimation of their capacity to be manipulated by others they don't see it or to give you a, a, an, an amusing example to me uh, Bill Gates in 2004 claimed that spam would be a thing of the past by 2006 well I don't know if you've looked at your computer <laughs> lately and it sure as hell ain't 2006 so he makes a common mistake of people that are heavily reality and truth oriented. They underestimate the power of deception. Deception takes the lead. You know, they, there were three main ways of spamming at the time in 2004, and he and his engineers could already see how you could stop all three. What he couldn't imagine was that the spammers could overcome those defenses in a month or two of work, plus they were inventing three new ways of spam. Okay. So, um, uh, now I'm, uh, I have to try to remember your question to actually uh, answer it. I, I wouldn't want to be absolutistic about this at all in terms of people that are both honest, truth-seeking, and smart. You know. um, my view is that if you think of it as an evolutionary game, there's almost every player you could want. There's, there are people that are genuinely honest and straight and so on, and also practice relatively low self-deception. There are people that are hopeless self-deceivers, and there's various combinations in between, you know. And in evolutionary terms, we're playing out a long-term evolutionary game with the frequencies of these phenotypes, if you will. Next, over here. Oh, Thank you. Um, have you looked at how different personality types relate to self-deception? Let me give you a concrete example. Narcissist, someone who's been um, clinically diagnosed as a narcissist, does he or she have more of a predilection toward self-deception than... Well, narcissism is almost by definition a form of self-deception. And I do treat it briefly in a paragraph where I'm talking about whatever. Over, no, I, I can't remember. <laughs> in, in the first chapter. Uh, narcissists, um, oh God, what's the constellation of traits they have besides? They have a sense of entitlement, for example, that they're entitled to. It's, it's not just that they think highly of themselves or, you know, Narcissus was in love with his uh, reflection in the water, and then he fell into it in the old Greek myth. But they have a sense of entitle uh, entitlement and so on. But the short answer to your question is no. I have not at all thought about nor collected evidence on different personality types. It would be very interesting to do. And Narcissus happens to be the only one and as you can see, I can barely remember what I said about that. <laughs> and it wasn't me doing the work. 
but it would be very interesting to, to follow that up, both logically in terms of what you would think would be true, and then, of course, empirically, if you could get your hands on some useful data. Uh, here. Yes. <laughs> um, Richie Goldstein, um, there are obvious costs to self-deception, so it would seem like it would be better for us to be able to um, deceive without deceiving ourselves. Um, I understand that we tend to be rather bad liars, and that it's possible to train someone to be a much better liar than, than we tend to be. It, we're also rather bad at detecting lies, and again, it's something where it's not difficult to train someone to be better at detecting lies. From an evolutionary point of view, why are we such bad liars and such bad um, uh, detectors of lying? Well, first of all, the, the evidence on detection of lying uh, comes almost exclusively from artificial lab experiments that remove prior knowledge. You don't know anything about the person. The person's lying in a situation in which there's no consequences. Uh, it's very interesting. There are certain linguistic features of lying. For example, it's, 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 it's almost like that guy running into the telephone pole. If I'm lying, I, I, you drop the use of the word I, and you start increasing the use of the other pronouns, like they and so on. You distance yourself from, from the behavior you're doing. Now, they did a very, very, someone did a lovely analysis of speeches given, and public statements given by US administration officials. This would include, I don't even want to use the mofo's names. So anyway, you know who they are. Bush and his crowd, and, <laughs> and they separated, this was before the Iraq war, they separated their statements that dealt with the Iraq war and are we going to go to war and that kind of stuff from statements they were making in the same time that didn't deal with it. And they did a linguistic analysis. And with one exception, it, you know, three or four classic signs uh, from the analysis via computers of people making lies in certain uh, more artificial situations uh, matched it. You know, they, in other words, they used I and so on less often when they're talking about the Iraq war and so on. Now, what was interesting, it, it, one thing that was interesting in this context, which is why I mentioned it, is the correlations were stronger for reality. I mean, these were real people standing up in front of, of, of groups and trying to convince their consequences to whether you can fool people or not. In the lab, they're not. You know, I'm fond when I'm when I'm lecturing to college students. I'm fond of telling the men in the audience, and there's no good evidence on this. You know, this is me talking. If you're going out with a woman for six months and she doesn't know you better than you know yourself, you're going out with a slow woman. <laughs> you know, so, the point is, and it's certainly true in my life. The women, let's say, they evaluate you against a, you know, a background of knowledge about you. I mean, I'll tell you one anecdote. I, I hope she'll forgive me. She forgives me. But my, my first wife, I, I ne I'll never forget the shock one day when I realized she had caught me in a lie and hadn't said anything to me about it. I'm a simple-minded fool. You lie to me, and I'll be in your face. Why are you lying to me? So I realized. She's sitting there and, and gathering data. You know? <laughs> and I, I almost felt like it was a betrayal of our marriage, you know. <laughs> I thought we agreed on how things should run. So on the, on the business of how good we are as a liar, I don't know what, honestly what you're referring to there. I, I know the literature on detecting uh, lying quite a bit, and most of the stuff is, is quite artificial. Uh, the only really good data from reality in the police domain was done by Dr. Vry. He's Dutch, but he teaches somewhere here in England. And the Dutch have been um, filming all of their interrogations now for a number of years, routinely, as should be done. You know. Uh, so anyway, uh, they had a so they put together a nice set of crimes where there was good evidence, whether DNA or whatnot to believe that they had imprisoned the right person, but they had interrogated one or two others for the same crime. 
So now they have police officers with various train a degree of training looking at it, you know. And one thing that came out then, uh, and this is something Briars emphasized, is that there was a, a, a correlation between um, um, well, there, there was a correlation between things that, that, that went along with cognitive load and whether you detected liars. In a situation that wasn't quite as realistic like that, if you asked the police who's lying, they were less accurate than if you simply asked them who's thinking harder. That was a better guide on to it. Incidentally, cognitive load often goes opposite of nervousness. So if you're nervous about something, you blink more often. If I ask you to solve a little arithmetic problem while I'm looking at you, you blink less. So what happens when you lie? You blink less. So we have this notion that nervousness is expected in lying. It turns out to be a very poor predictor. I mean, when, when, if people cite it or whatnot. And it may be because we're conscious of it and suppressing it, but it's also uh, the evidence strongly suggests, and there's, there's, an un there's other variables, that the cognitive load of lying produces symptoms that are opposite of nervousness. You fidget less, for example, you know, because you're thinking about something. So anyway, that, that's all I have to say. Thank on you. That. Very nice answer. I'm afraid we'd better not have any more questions now, and I'm going to wind up the proceedings. I've, I've got four very brief announcements to make, um, so just bear with me. I promise they'll be brief. First is that we hope there's going to be a podcast of this event on the LSE website, so look out for that. And the second is to say that having come here, you might enjoy other events that are hosted by the Center for Philosophy. And the Center's recently started a Friends of the Center initiative um, to enable a wider public to benefit from the intellectual culture that the Center stands for. And for example, one of the world's leading scientists, Paul Nurse, will give a Friends public lecture here in March. Friends also get various other benefits. And if you'd like any further information, pick up a copy of the Friends brochure from the table outside as you go out or look at the centre website. And the third announcement is that two more Darwinian thinkers, I'm glad to say, are giving LSE public lectures very soon. Stephen Pinker will be here on Monday the 31st of October and Robert Frank will be here on Thursday the 10th of November. And finally, um, Bob's book, Deceit and Self-Deceit, will be on sale outside the lecture theater. And I can promise you that the book will take you on a very enlightening and intriguing journey. It's a model of lucid science with immense ramifications of all kinds. And it's a source of very novel thinking and of unique perspectives. And it's full of disarming jokes, too, and insights into yourself, or at least who you like to think you are. And Bob is about to go to take his place for signing the book. So may I ask you just please to remain in your seats until he's got to that side of the lecture theater and can get out comfortably. Um, and I'd just like to say, Bob, thank you again for a really memorable lecture.